This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Texas Law Hawk. Is it him? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, your hawk is amazing. Yeah. I spend a lot of time doing eagle noises. Practicing. (laughs) It's one of my favorite animals. Top three. Top tier favorite animal, for sure. I spend a lot of time making eagle noises. (laughs) I do. Just throw that out there on episode 51. (laughs) Russell will know exactly what I'm talking about. I just squawk a lot. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Did I tell you that one time we were doing some, like, you know, we do all those, like, relationship questions or whatever? And I really uh-huh. thought he was going to give me, like, a really good – I asked him, like, what – it was like, what if you had to be any animal or what animal describes me best, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Waited, and he was like, a toucan. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? He was like, you're real bright. You're flapping around. You always got something to say. Got a big old beak. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Fair. A toucan. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> Yeah, I was like slightly offended, and then I was like, I respect that. I can see it. <laughs> That's amazing. I spent way too much time last night trying to figure out how to cover up my gray hairs. You want to talk about fresh hell? It's turning gray at like 30. <laughs> you want even more fresh hell? We have a- another podcast to recommend to you. We had some people talking about podcasts I'd recommended in our discussion group. And just so everybody is aware, ours should be your numero uno always. Yeah, we're our (laughs) own favorites in case that was unclear. So, (laughs) But I have another podcast to share with everybody called the Fresh Hell Podcast. Oh, hey, I know them. It's excellent. And take a listen to their trailer here. What Fresh Hell is this? I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. 
And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Rochelle Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. People that have not yet should really join our Patreon. They really should. <laughs> they must. They have to. What do you get if you join our Patreon, Mogab? My love and support and the satisfaction of making our numbers add up because our no, downloads... No, no. She's full of crap. Oh, you, get, oh. you get actual things. You get actual oh, things. Fine, fine. <laughs> Here we are just giving everyone a trophy. <laughs> Participation trophy, everyone. Come get it while it's hot. If you subscribe at the $5 level, you get a bonus episode every month and a shout out on the podcast, which you have to sign up for. So go sign up for your shout out. If you subscribe at the $7 level, you will get all of that. Plus the mini creeps, which are two to three times a month, just short, like 20 to 30 minute episodes about a different topic each time. We've done cults. We've done the Fast and the Furious. (laughs) (laughs) We've done, what else have we done? Waffle House, duh. Oh, we did a whole, like, all the crimes that have happened in a Waffle House. So go check those out. We have, like, four or five, five posted now, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe six. Anyways, plus you get a thank you card with a sticker and an our autograph signed by us. Yes. And then you can join the $10 level and get all of that plus 10% off our merch. So go sign up. Yeah, you really should. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. A big thanks to Jenny Sexena, who sent this story to me, and also to an episode of Dateline called The Phone Call, and also to 
the absolute most detailed and well-written court documents I have ever seen in my life. There was a table of contents. It was like basically a 200-page book. I've gone a long time before asking or telling you this, but what exactly is Dateline? (laughs) Speechless. I mean, I it's a show, but is it like, uh, yeah, like I don't, I don't really notice. I've never seen an episode. Yeah, it's a show, and it's uh, it's kind of like your twenty twenty, you know. It's investigative journalism. They it's like, like weekly. Is it still on? Is this like an yeah? Old it's still on. Thing? They're in their like thirtieth season. It's like now that's what I call music. Fifty seven over here. Right. It's been around forever. That's different than sixty minutes. Sixty minutes. A murder thing, or is that something totally different? No, sixty minutes is like the news. I think it's oh. like more newsy, but so I'm not totally sure. And Dateline are more similar. Oh, I think so. Okay. I don't really watch any of them, so listeners, chime in <laughs> <laughs> or don't. I'm a little out on 2020 after the much anticipated like Scott Peterson. We have new information episode, and then I watched the whole thing and didn't learn a single new thing. That's really annoying. Yeah, I would be annoyed about that too. All right. Okay. I really felt like this story is just, we're back to classic creeper story. It's as nosy with the light on as you can get with a murder. This is like truly a creeper story. Today, I'm telling you about the Schroll family shootings. For this story, we're in KCK, good old Kansas City, Kansas, which my friend Melissa, who's from Kansas City, Missouri, she says it doesn't actually exist and no one lives there, but these people do. And now I'll know how uh, behind she is on episodes from how long it takes her to the <laughs> say Kansas to me about City, it. Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri beef is about to be another part of our brand. It's like Waffle House, Fast and Furious, us giving our Kansas. opinion on Kansas City <laughs> slash Missouri slash Kansas City, which I'm actually going to be spending this week with someone that resides in one of them. I'm not sure which one, so can't wait to to unpack that with them. Excellent. It was just after 2 a.m. on April 7th, 2008, when Elizabeth Horton's telephone started ringing. It was her 45-year-old daughter, Kathleen Schroll, who said, Mom, Pete is in the house and he stole the lawnmower out of the garage. He said he's going to kill Carl and then kill me, and he said he has got his tracks covered where no one will find out. Whoa. Elizabeth also couldn't believe what she was hearing. She asked if Kathleen had called the police, and Kathleen said no, she hadn't. And then the phone went dead. Elizabeth hadn't heard any noises in the background, and Kathleen hadn't been yelling. She didn't seem panicked. But at 2.30 a.m., the 911 call came in from Kathleen's brother, Randy Horton, who told police about the odd phone call to their mother. He said the Pete in question was Pete Coons, and he was a man that Kathleen had already had several run-ins with. Randy had said Kathleen had said that Pete was there at her house now and that she'd said he was breaking in with a gun in his hand and threatening to kill them. Police responded to the call within minutes, but it was too late. When they walked up to the front door, it was slightly open and the lights were on. They walked inside and they saw two cell phones on the table just by the front door, and just beyond that, in the middle of the living room, was Kathleen Schroll, dressed in nurse's scrubs and wearing jewelry and her glasses. She was lying face up on the floor with a gunshot wound to the head. (gasps) Oh, Kathleen's husband, Carl Schroll, was found dead in the bedroom, sprawled across the bed with his legs dangling off, wearing only a t-shirt. He had three wounds, 
what looked like blunt force trauma to the head, and two gunshots to the chest. Good God. Do we need to redefine nosy with the light on? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) This is definitely nosy with the light on. Police began to process the scene, and they quickly realized that there was no physical evidence anywhere to show any type of break-in, and there weren't any signs of a struggle. No broken locks or windows, no overturned furniture or broken lamps, nothing had been stolen. Everything in the house looked perfectly normal, except for the two dead bodies. A thirty-eight revolver was found lying next to Kathleen's body a few feet from her foot on the left side. Four bullets had been fired from the gun, but they only managed to find three. A phone was near her as well, a cordless telephone. It seemed obvious to police what had happened here. Kathleen shot her husband and then killed herself. Murder-suicide. That is, until a car pulled up to the house. It was Kathleen's mother, Elizabeth, and her brother, Randy. And they were there to tell the police that this was no suicide. This was a cold-hearted execution. Ooh, I hate that word. It's so chilling. I know. I know. So, sorry, the police don't know about Pete yet. Right. Because they just They were just in. the ones that were like first on the scene. Like they right. just got the, you know, message from dispatch. They didn't like listen to the whole 911 call and And Kathleen or no, the brother called 911. Mhm. Okay. Everybody just call 911 first, you know? Just call 911. <laughs> Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? They told police about the phone call that Elizabeth had gotten from Kathleen less than an hour earlier. The phone call that proved that this was not a murder-suicide, but a double homicide. And not only that, but they knew exactly who had committed the murder. 52-year-old Olin Pete Coons. You see, Kathleen worked at a local credit union, but until recently, she'd also had a second job caring for an elderly man. His name was Olin Coons, and he'd been in his 80s and suffering from dementia. He died the year before, and guess who was the beneficiary of his $42,000 life insurance policy? Kathleen! You said $42,000? Uh-huh. Okay. Olin had also left her his house and some of his late wife's jewelry. But Olin Coons had a son, Pete. And people were a little surprised that Olin had decided to leave so many of his assets to Kathleen. But Kathleen explained to everyone that Pete was not a big part of Olin's life. He was a drug addict. They didn't have a close relationship. So he left the money to her because they'd become so close while she was his caregiver. When Olin died, Kathleen seemed to take it really hard. But lately, she'd seemed to be doing pretty great. And she was just like a caregiver in terms of like a nurse to a a patient. That's it. Yeah, but she wasn't actually a nurse. Like, she didn't have a nursing background. She just kind of would go over there and help out. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. The only thing not going great for Kathleen at the time of her death was that for months, she'd been involved in a bitter lawsuit with Pete over the money. After Olin died, Kathleen said Pete started badgering her about the money, but he didn't stop there. He started going by the house Olin left to Kathleen and stealing money, even vandalizing the house. Kathleen said he went and stole the plumbing out of the house. She said Pete was getting desperate. (laughs) Stole the plumbing? Like, I know. (laughs) Like, took me a second. I mean, it's $42,000. I get that that can like really make a difference to someone, but. And it's $42,000 in today's money, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, I know. This isn't like an an old timey case. Yeah. Today's money. Yeah. As we've discussed previously. 
my student loans exceed that. <laughs> so again, if you'd like to sign up for our Patreon. <laughs> or join our Patreon. We talk about MoGab's increasing debt. <laughs> Tight. In this week's bonus, or in this month, <laughs> next month's bonus episode. <laughs> yes. So Kathleen's mother and brother, Elizabeth and Randy, are at Kathleen's house telling police they know who killed her. Later that morning, Kathleen's adult daughter, Blair Hadley, woke up to her grandmother banging on her door to tell her the awful news. And Blair said she wanted it to be untrue so bad. She just felt like she was going to faint. I'm sorry, who's Blair? Who's Blair is Kathleen's daughter. Oh, was that the only daughter she had? Kathleen and Carl? No, Kathleen is not Elizabeth. (laughs) And I can't even draw my own because my nails are wet. (laughs) Sorry, which one is the daughter and which one is the mom? Okay, there's Blair, who also has a daughter, Caroline. All right. Caroline's young. She's like a kid. Blair's mom is Kathleen. Okay, is Kathleen murdered? Yes. Okay, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Kathleen, Blair, Caroline. Correct. I love all those names. I know. I was getting Elizabeth and Kathleen mixed up. Okay. Ah, all right. So who called Blair? Elizabeth went to Blair's house, banging on her door to tell her. That's her grandma. Okay. Yeah, her grandma. Blair had just seen Kathleen and Carl the night before when she'd taken her young daughter, Caroline, over to her mom's house. Blair had wanted to stay the night there, but Kathleen had told her no. She'd said that she and Carl weren't really getting along at the time. And she said, you know how Carl is when he gets upset. He just wants to be left alone. So it would just be better if you went home. Kathleen and Carl had been together since Blair was about 10. Blair said that she remembers being a little wary of her mom's new relationship at the beginning because Carl was so much older than her mom, like 20 years older. But Blair grew to be very fond of Carl and would even call him dad. She said Carl and Kathleen had seemed happy and comfortable. They were always joking around, always the life of the party. But Pete's harassment over those last few months had started to scare Kathleen. Two days before the murders at a local quick trip convenience store, there had actually been a confrontation between Pete and Kathleen. Kathleen said that Pete got in her face and threatened her, saying, you won't be spending any more of my dad's money. Kathleen had told people that she was afraid for her life, but she didn't think the police would do anything about it because he hadn't actually hurt her. Is he just like showing up where she's at? Like, is this a small town or is it like he's stalking Well, it's her? Kansas City, Kansas, yeah, you know, I mean, it's so it's small. not that small. Yeah, it seems like he's just... It seems like they just kind of ran into each other at this quick trip and this confrontation happened because he wasn't like popping up all the time. It was just kind of this one confrontation. Oh, my God. We're getting a Bucky's. Oh, my God. How lucky for you. And this doesn't like move the needle a whole lot for me. We're also getting a Publix, which some people really care about. I mean, oh, we I'm don't have like, a Publix. Yeah. Right. But. Call me when you get an H-E-B. Okay. I know. Well. <laughs> or Whataburger. <sighs> yeah. So when Kathleen was murdered two days later, everyone assumed it was Pete. And knowing that he had been harassing her, it definitely seemed like a likely suspect. Oh, the quick trip thing was only two days before? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, dang. Once the police had all this information, their theory of the case jumped from murder-suicide to double murder. But what really sealed the deal on their theory was that phone call to Kathleen's mom, the one made around 2.30 a.m. saying that Pete was there. He was killing Carl, and he was going to kill her next. Once police knew about that phone call, they were sure case closed. 
Police tracked Pete down as he was driving his teenage kids, Ben and Melody, to the bus stop for school. When Pete stopped the car, they noticed several people approaching their car with their guns drawn, but they had no idea why, and Ben and Melody were terrified. It wasn't until they saw the black and white cruiser coming around the corner that their hearts stopped pounding and they were relieved, thinking that the cops were there to help. But then they realized the people pointing guns at them were also cops. Also cops. Were they like in plain clothes, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I think so. They must have been. And their cars were like... Yeah, unmarked. Yeah. They got the family out of the car, and Ben said a cop pointed a shotgun at the back of his head while they were detaining them. They handcuffed all of them, Ben and Melody included, and put them in police cars and took them to the station. Meanwhile, Pete's wife, Deirdre, who went by D, is back at the house, getting worried that Pete hasn't come back from dropping the kids off at the bus stop. It should have been a quick 10 minutes there and back, but he'd been gone over an hour. Their daughter, Mariah, was home from college at the time, and so she called the high school to ask for her siblings, and the school said they weren't there. So now the family's panicking. They have no idea where Pete, Melody, and Ben are. They're worried they've been in an accident or something. So Mariah and her boyfriend, Ross, jump in the car, and they follow the route Pete should have taken looking for an accident. They just didn't see any trace of them. At the station, police have Melody, who is 14 and afraid and on the verge of tears. Oh, I would have been boo-hooing already. Oh, my God. No, I would have been hysterical. Verge of tears? Are you kidding? She has zero idea what she's doing there. And police just kept peppering her with questions, a lot of questions, including questions about her dad. Melody said they questioned her so aggressively that she was too scared to ask for anything, including asking for her mom, which is what she really wanted. Police were also separately questioning Ben, asking him things like where his dad had been the night before, what time he'd gotten home. But Ben didn't know. He said he hadn't really been paying attention. Can they do that? I mean, I guess the kids aren't like in trouble, but. Yeah, they're like Should witnesses. They have attorneys? Yeah, I think so. But in another room, Pete was waving his Miranda rights and speaking to detectives. He answered questions about his history with Kathleen, but he totally denied being involved in her murder. He told police he'd been at home with his family. Finally, by the afternoon, Melody and Ben were brought home in a police car. Dee still hadn't been told what was going on, and the police finally told her. Pete had been arrested for the murders of Kathleen and Carl Schroll. I can't believe they wouldn't call their mom. No kidding! I know! Not, not only is she panicking, she doesn't know where they are, but like, now they're being questioned by the police at 14? Like, that's traumatic! Yes! And Pete's family knew this was impossible. No way could he have killed Kathleen and Carl. To Dee, Pete was a devoted husband and father, a fun-loving guy who loved to make them smile, especially at the holidays. He loved fishing. He used to be a touring musician back in the 60s and 70s. He wasn't a murderer. He was a 50-year-old retired mail carrier for the post office with no criminal history. Oh. Though they say going postal is a saying for a reason. Mm. Pete and Dee had been married for 30 years and they had five kids. Not a single one of them doubted Pete for one second because they knew something the police did not. They knew exactly where Pete had been when Kathleen and Carl were murdered. Tell me. That night, Dee said Pete had been waking her up all night on and off coughing. Once, she'd woken up to him coughing and saw that he was on the computer. Mariah and her boyfriend Ross had been up late watching TV in the living room and Pete had come out of the bedroom and told them not to stay up too much later. They'd actually spoken to him, had a conversation with him. 
And this was like the next day. This wasn't like them remembering a day nine weeks later. You know, this was like the next day. Where were you last night? They were still awake around 2.30 and Mariah said she heard the coughing and clicking on the keyboard. But Hmm. it made no difference. No other suspects were investigated and Pete was charged with a double murder. Oh my goodness. Police searched for more evidence to use against Pete. They searched his house for bloody clothing, firearms, ammunition, but they didn't find anything. Because they were shot. That's how they were killed. They were shot, right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. They also looked for the lawnmower that Kathleen had said he'd stolen on that phone call, but they didn't find that either. They searched his van for fingerprints, bullets, and DNA, and they found nothing linking Pete to the shooting. There also wasn't any blood or tissue in the van. But in January of 2009, Pete's trial began. The prosecution's theory was that Pete snuck out of his house in the middle of the night in a rage. He went to Kathleen's house, bashed Carl over the head with some object, they weren't quite sure what, then grabbed Kathleen's gun, shot Carl twice, then shot and killed Kathleen, and then went home, all because he thought Kathleen had stolen his inheritance and he wanted it back. And like, I don't know what to think right now, but I just, I understand like being enraged about the inheritance, but like. Is that something where all of a sudden at like 2.30 in the morning you're like, I'm angry now. And you like break out. Like are you online shopping at night and you're like, I really want to buy this whatever. <laughs> but, I like, but I can't. But I can't. Because Kathleen's got all my money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of evidence against Pete. But the evidence they had seemed to be pretty compelling. Kathleen's daughter, Blair, testified about what a loving and caring mom Kathleen had been. And about the confrontation with Pete at the quick trip that Kathleen had told her about. Elizabeth, Kathleen's mother, testified that she spoke with Kathleen almost every day about problems with Pete. And that every time something new came up, Kathleen would call her about it. She said Pete had moved closer to where Kathleen lived and would just drive past her a lot. And then there was the motive. Pete and Kathleen were currently in a legal battle over the inheritance. There was the gunshot wound in the back of Kathleen's head, which made it hard to believe that it could have been suicide. Like, who shoots themselves in the back of the head? All the bullets from those three gunshot wounds were all recovered, and they were all determined to be the same caliber as Kathleen's revolver that had been found next to her. But they couldn't tell, like, the bullets were too messed up to see if it was from the same exact gun. But you going to get on your ballistics train again? No, absolutely not. I'm just going to (laughs) say they're as certain as they possibly can be that they were shot with Kathleen's gun, but they can't like 100% prove it because the bullets were compromised. And then there was that phone call. Mom, Pete is in the house and he's going to kill Carl and then kill me. Kathleen's mom said she repeated those exact words and then hung up the phone. This feels fishy. But Pete's attorney, Patty Cobb, believed that he was an innocent man. She believed from the beginning that it had been murder-suicide, but it didn't really matter what she believed. It mattered what the jury would believe. So she tried to put up as good of a defense as possible to prove to the jury that there was simply no way Pete could have done what they said. First of all, there was no physical evidence linking Pete to the crime scene at all. No blood, DNA, fingerprints, no trace evidence of any kind, nothing to indicate that Pete Coons had ever even stepped foot in Kathleen and Carl's home. I don't think it was murder-suicide, but I do think someone that knew about the legal battle broke in and murdered them. Is that your theory, your initial theory at this time? Yes. Then there was the alibi his family had offered them. Mariah and Ross, the oldest daughter and the boyfriend, 
They testified about how they'd spoken to Pete late that night and heard him clickety-clacking on the keyboard late into the night. But they're all related, so like... Right, so they're out... Al- yeah, so their alibis are compromised. Like, you, he, they could just be saying that. Right. Which, honestly, okay, before we move on, I want to say something about that because I could not imagine a more frustrating existence than you being with your loved one, so you absolutely knowing that they didn't do this thing because you were there with them the whole time, but not being able to prove it and them going to prison. It's kind of like in long shot how the girlfriend was saying, like, what if we had watched the baseball game at home and yeah. nobody believes me that he was with me here because, like, I would say anything to protect him, you know? Right. Could not imagine. Ugh. <sighs> ugh. The defense's side was that there was only one logical explanation, murder-suicide. They showed how there was no sign of a struggle, no sign of a break-in, or anyone else being there, and that Kathleen and Carl had been shot with Kathleen's gun, the gun she carried around in her purse. If Pete came over in the middle of the night in a rage, intending to kill Kathleen, why wouldn't he have brought his own weapon with him? Because then we would think it was him, because it's his weapon. Isn't it more smart to not use it? More smart, isn't it? You're just going to go and, f- and find a weapon and over subdue two grown adults and, and just hope that it works out for the best? I'm not very good at this. I'm not sure. <laughs> you, I've never planned a murder before. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> yeah, you over here, though, you got picture diagrams. <laughs> I have never planned a murder. I have just planned Body. on how to, yeah, on how to cover one up. <laughs> just kidding. Great. <laughs> None of my plans would work, by the way. All of my ideas have been totally not disproven. What do you call it? Like, well, proven that they would never work. So that's a bummer. <laughs> mm. To answer the question about how Kathleen could have killed herself when she was shot in the back of the head was the medical examiner. He testified that it had been a contact gunshot, meaning the barrel of the gun was actually pressed against her head when the gun went off. But he said that he could tell that the barrel of the gun had been angled and not totally flush against the skull. Well, are we assuming that it was a murder-suicide that, like, she initiated? What a, why right. not him? Yes, that she shot him and then killed herself because she made the phone call and the gun was lying oh, next okay. to her body and they were in two separate rooms. Yeah. And he was shot, like, three times. He was shot twice, yeah, in the chest. Oh, okay. And then hit on the head. Hmm. The autopsy also showed that Carl's death was caused by the bullet wounds in his abdomen. But he also had a wound on his head that the medical examiner said was blunt force injury that came from an edged weapon. It was determined that it had been a crushing blow to the head, but that it didn't damage his skull or brain. So Pete would have had to break in the house, bash Carl over the head with something that was never discovered, get Kathleen's gun out of her purse, go back and shoot Carl while Kathleen calls her mom to tell her what's happening, and then come back and shoot Kathleen in the back of the head, all while leaving no sign of a struggle or leaving a single trace that he'd ever been there. Okay, but why, Kathleen? Why would Kathleen do this? Why would she do this? She was just a loving, caring mother. I mean, what on earth? She was taking care of his dad. She's such a sweet lady. I have no idea. The defense said that Pete was in a dispute over his father, Olin's assets, but that there was no proof that he was harassing Kathleen or even that this confrontation at the quick trip had ever happened. One detective had checked it out, and he couldn't find anything to prove that it had. Nothing on security cameras, no witnesses, nothing. Also, Kathleen had never filed for a restraining order, even though she supposedly was in fear of her life. Well, 
I don't know. That to me is like the lie detector test. You know, like, let me put this piece of paper on file so the stalker won't come near me anymore because I have the piece of paper on file, you know? Right. What you do is you put that piece of paper on file so that if you're ever murdered, they can say, look, she had a restraining order against him. She was scared. It's really only great for after the fact. (laughs) Yeah. It's not going to protect you. Yeah, it's great. It's a great system we got. (laughs) The prosecution kept saying that Pete wanted Kathleen dead because he wasn't getting results quickly enough with the life insurance case. But the defense said that they were fixing to go to court to settle the dispute over the life insurance. Pete said he was smart enough to know that you can't take a dead person to court. He really needed her to be alive because he wouldn't get any of his money if she were dead. Well. (laughs) But the one thing the defense could not explain in any logical way was that phone call, the one Kathleen had made to her mother just before the murders, where she told her mother who it was that was in their house about to kill her. She told her it was Pete. Well, but she sounded all calm, remember? Oh, did she? Oh. Oh, you told me that. Did I tell you that? I wasn't there. Interesting. Pete says he doesn't think that phone call ever happened. But how could Kathleen's mother have made that up at 2.30 in the morning? She was at the house telling police about that phone call soon after they discovered the body, which was just after they'd made the 911 call. Still. Pete was sure he would be found not guilty. He had high faith in the system and that the system would get it right and see that he was innocent. Oh, sweet Pete. (sighs) Sweet, sweet Pete. He was already thinking the family would go to McDonald's for lunch afterwards. Aw. I know. You can, you you know, maybe splurge a little bit. (laughs) For a celebration? Yeah. 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 I mean, Apparently Applebee's is fancy. Now, if I hear that song one more time on the radio, I'm going to lose it. Applebee's is fancy? Yeah. Oh, that Applebee song? I hear it on TikTok. No, stop it. Don't get it in my head. All right. I don't really know it, so no worries there. Because fancy like... <laughs> God. Ugh. Well, you did that to yourself. <laughs> oh, no, it's in there. The jury deliberated for two days, and when they walked back into the courtroom, they would not look at Pete, and he immediately knew oh. it wasn't a good sign. But their verdict ended up being very strange. For the murder of Kathleen Schroll, the jury found Pete Coons guilty of her murder. And when the verdict was read, Pete turned around and he looked at his wife and kids and he just thought, what are you going to do without me? But then, for the murder of Carl Schroll, the jury found Pete not guilty. Oh, that's not how this works. No, there's no way he could have been guilty of one and not the other. It almost seems like a cop-out from the jury. Is it like they didn't want to give him like, as big of a sentence, like this means they. No, because being found not guilty of Carl's murder made no difference to Pete's sentence. He was oh. sentenced to 50 years without parole, <gasps> which oh, for no. him at being a 52 year old, you know, fairly unhealthy man, that was the same thing as a life sentence. Kathleen's family was really confused and upset about the acquittal for Carl's murder. But Blair especially was relieved that Pete would be in prison. To her, he was a monster, and she hadn't been able to sleep at night because she'd been so scared that he would come for her next. My man's up here on the computer coughing up a lung all night, like (laughs) online shopping for all the things he can't buy. (laughs) Taking his family to McDonald's. And the real kicker, Pete said, none of this is true. He said the jury didn't get a full picture of Kathleen. She was portrayed as this wonderful woman who was working as a caregiver because she just cared so much for other people. And it was just out of the goodness of her heart that she did all these kind things. (gasps) Oh, I know what happened. 
But Pete actually believed that Kathleen was a con artist of Machiavellian proportions who murdered her husband and killed herself, all while plotting to bring Pete down with her. She somehow got this person that she was caregiving for to put her down as a beneficiary or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh. Oh, you didn't already get that? Okay. <laughs> uh. Slow on the uptake this week, Moga. Maybe Just it's all those have fumes from your uh, nail polish there. <laughs> I've got to multitask this week, you know? You have so many weddings. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. First of all, Pete believed that Kathleen had been taking advantage of his father for years. She'd gotten the job taking care of Olin from Pete's sister, Patsy Van Fleck. Patsy lived with Olin in a house that they owned together, and Patsy was actually the original beneficiary of Olin's life insurance, and if she were dead, the benefit was supposed to go to Pete. So Patsy met Kathleen at like a veterans affair place in Kansas City. And soon after that, they started doing regular housekeeping for Patsy and Olin. But they were both getting older and they had medical problems. But then a few weird things happened. In September of 2004, Patsy called a lawyer named Chip DeMoss and told him to drop a will that left everything Patsy had to Kathleen. And to get a power of attorney form for Kathleen as well. DeMoss sent the documents, but Patsy never signed them. Hmm. In September of 2005, Patsy and Olin signed over their house to Kathleen, and Kathleen's daughter Blair even moved in with them for a while. In February of 2006, Patsy got sick and went into the hospital, and DeMoss came and visited her, and he asked her why she'd never signed that will and the power of attorney. Oh no, here it comes. Patsy told DeMoss that Kathleen had pressured her into all of it. And that Patsy didn't want to give her the property or let her have power of attorney, and that she didn't trust Kathleen at all. Oh, good. And a few days later, Patsy died. And some strange things started happening in Olin's bank account. On the day Patsy died, he drew out $5,000 from his savings account. And three days later, a check to Kathleen was written for $3,000. It was later determined that those checks were forgeries, and Kathleen would end up draining $30,000 from Olin's accounts. Man, old people love to save their money. What's that like? (laughs) They live on a fixed income. Yeah. Almost two months after Patsy's death, the beneficiary of Olin's life insurance was changed from Pete to Kathleen. The change was made on the internet, but Olin didn't have internet service at his house. He didn't even have a computer. Of course not. I love him. (laughs) Pete had been living in Missouri, and he hadn't even been told that Patsy had died or that his father had Alzheimer's. And he soon became convinced that Kathleen was purposely driving a wedge between him and his dad. He went over to his dad's house to visit, but Kathleen was there and she wouldn't let him in. Dee said that she called Kathleen and begged her to at least let the grandkids see Olin. But she said that Olin never wanted to see any of them again, and if they wanted to see him, they'd have to bring the police. Oh my goodness. Pete and Dee said it was impossible for them to visit Olin. A bank employee at Olin's bank, Teresa Harding, she started getting worried after all these big withdrawals, just one after the other. And she called and she asked Olin to come meet her personally. Kathleen showed up with Olin and refused to let Teresa speak to him without her. But Teresa argued with her, and she finally got Olin on his own, 
and she said it only took her a few minutes alone with him to realize that he was mentally impaired, and she immediately locked all of his bank accounts. Oh, Teresa. Mm-hmm. The MVP award this episode. <laughs> In September of 2006, a former coworker of Olin's, Bonnie Keith, went by the house to visit him. Kathleen wasn't there, but Blair was, and she refused to let Bonnie see Olin. Blair called Kathleen to get her to come back to the house, and Bonnie told Kathleen that she wanted to take Olin to visit his brother and that she'd bring him back later that day. And so Kathleen let her. She finally relented. And when Bonnie saw Olin, she was so shocked at his condition that she Mm -hmm. called Pete right away. Pete had Bonnie bring Olin over to his house, and when he saw his father, he knew Olin would be living with him from now on. He was absolutely furious at the way his father had been treated. They had to give him a shower because he smelled so bad. He had been sitting in urine-soaked underwear for days. He had bed sores. This is so sad. I know. His toenails were disturbingly long. He had sores on his nose, scratches on his face. Social services investigated Kathleen for elder abuse, and they found that she had exploited Olin. In October of 2006, the sheriff's office helped Pete retake possession of Olin's house from Kathleen, and the charges for elder abuse had been pending when Kathleen this died. This is all before the murder. So, like, why isn't all of this discussed in court? I'm screaming, but I don't even have the energy to scream because I'm so disappointed. Because the prosecutor chose not to pursue charges on Kathleen so that he could, like, he chose not to prosecute those charges. So he's a great guy. We love the prosecutor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. 
Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Three months after Pete got Olin out from Kathleen's clutches, Olin died. With Patsy also dead, that left Pete as the sole heir to the estate, which now included thousands of dollars in credit card debt that Kathleen had run up. Both Pete and Kathleen filed a claim for Olin's insurance, and the insurance company didn't know which claim to pay, so they deposited the money with the court and said that they could battle it out in the court. The day Kathleen died, they were one month away from going to mediation. A few days before her death, Pete had submitted an offer giving Kathleen 25% of the life insurance. That would have been like four days before he supposedly threatened her at the quick trip, telling her she'd never spend any of his father's money, which doesn't make any and sense. And like she doesn't earn, like she doesn't deserve any of it. I, no, this is just to make it go way, away. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you didn't even like take care of this man. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. So him threatening her about that doesn't make any sense when he just offered her 25% of it. Kathleen had a job as a systems administrator at a credit union in Kansas City, Kansas, and Carl didn't work. So after she lost that second job taking care of Olin, she started drowning in debt. They were spending way more than they were making. And so they took a second mortgage out on their home, which got them close to $30,000. And Kathleen started using payday lenders that offered short-term loans at really high interest rates. By 2008, she was repaying loans from six of those lenders, and the loan payments were more than she was making at the credit union. Oh, no. But Kathleen hid all of this from her family, and she decided that desperate times called for desperate actions. So in February of 2008, she started embezzling money from the credit union. I was just about to say, why didn't she go that route instead of (laughs) this killing basically this man, but I guess she thought she could get away with it easier than at at the credit union. But she did it by writing checks to her account at the credit union. And then she'd pull the physical checks from the queue so it would never get sent to the other bank for repayment. Over the next 60 days, she stole over $11,000 from the credit union. And no one suspected her of a thing until after she died, even though the embezzlement had thrown her ledger out of balance for months. She just kept saying she didn't know why it was out of balance. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why. That feels like something they need to follow up on. Right. And on her last day of work before the shootings, her boss told her that the board would need to see its quarterly report. And if Kathleen couldn't get her ledger balanced, that he would come and help her do it. Yeah. Listen, at a bank, that seems like bare minimum. I mean, if our drawer was a couple dollars short at the Waffle House, nobody was leaving. And we would sit there. Until you were pulling it out of your apron to make up the difference and we'd split it. That's not okay. And then we'd finally get to go home. That's unacceptable, but okay. Well, 
It was usually a couple bucks. (laughs) Usually. She also started planting the seeds about this feud with Pete. On April 5th, two days before the shooting, she came into the bank and told her coworkers that she'd seen Pete that morning at the quick trip and he'd threatened her. The next day, she told her daughter Blair the same story, only she said it had been in the afternoon after work. She'd also told her lawyers about this quick trip threat before April 5th, which was the two days before the shooting when she said that it happened. She told her lawyers it happened, Mm -hmm. like, before April 5th. The detectives had tried to confirm this story. Like I said, they'd interviewed people at the quick trip. They'd pulled surveillance video. Surveillance videos, yeah. They couldn't find a single shred of evidence to corroborate Kathleen's story that this confrontation had ever taken place. Kathleen, you a liar, girl. Also, that phone call that Kathleen made, the one that basically proved it was Pete who killed her, it was Mm -hmm. really weird. It wasn't recorded, but Elizabeth described it to investigators, and this is what the transcript in the court document said. Okay, I'm just going to read it like a transcript. Elizabeth, hello? Kathleen, mom? Elizabeth, yes, what's wrong? Kathleen, Pete is here in the house, and he said he stole the lawnmower out of the garage. He said he is going to kill Carl, and he said he is going to kill me, and he said he has got his tracks covered where no one will find out. Elizabeth, what? Repeat that. Kathleen, Pete is here in the house, and he said he stole the lawnmower out of the garage. He said he is going to kill Carl, and he said he is going to kill me, and he said he has got his tracks covered where no one will find out. She repeated it word for word. Word for word. It's like it was rehearsed. It's like she had it rehearsed. Like, if somebody said repeat that, wouldn't you just be like, he's going to kill me. Call the police. Like, yeah. You know, I would have just called the police and not my mom. I mean, obviously, come on. Like, uh, why? Mm -hmm. A guy is in the house killing and your first thought is you're going to call your 78 year old mother. What's she going to do? Yeah. Also, what's the deal with the lawnmower? And what's the deal with the lawnmower? They never (laughs) found this lawnmower. He didn't have the lawnmower. There probably wasn't one. I think, you know, now that you mention it, I think I do remember hearing something about a lawnmower, but it's just just another piece of the crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. I do. The call lasted 45 seconds, according to telephone records. There were no sounds of struggle. No one's in your house then. 45 seconds? Like, yeah. no one's in your house. Yeah. Like, you're spending a whole minute while somebody is in the bedroom killing your husband. But Elizabeth said there were no sounds of a struggle or gunshots in the background. He's in the bedroom killing Carl. Why aren't you running out the front door? Yeah. I mean, think about when we start recording this episode, we have to sit in silence for 10 seconds and it is the longest Mm -hmm. time of my life. 45? Well, think about when you put something in the microwave for one whole minute. Ugh, I can't be that bothered. I mean, it's just the longest (laughs) in the world. Elizabeth said Kathleen spoke quickly and she sounded afraid. Throughout the investigation, Kathleen's family would tell investigators all these stories about Pete. And it turned out that it was all lies. She told her mom that she carried a gun because part of her job was taking money to the Federal Reserve, which wasn't true. She was an accounting clerk. (laughs) Also, like, they have armored vehicles that come do that. Yeah, and you don't carry, like, like, your personal (laughs) weapon in your purse. Yeah. She also told her mom that she'd made several police reports about Pete stalking her, and she told her brother Randy that she'd taken out a restraining order on Pete. Neither of those things were true. She told her daughter Blair that this lawsuit with Pete was over $182,000 when it was really over a $42,000 insurance policy. She also lied about where she got the revolver from that she was shot with. She'd told Blair that Patsy, Pete's sister, had given Mm -hmm. it to her, but Patsy had reported that gun as stolen before she died. 
And then it turned out that the prosecution had royally messed up. And by messed up, I just mean we're terrible people. When it was discovered that they'd kept key information from the defense, they had computer data from Pete's computer that showed that someone was on the computer that night at the time of the murders, which could have been evidence to support his alibi. The defense hadn't known about this evidence that supported Pete's alibi, and that was enough to get Pete a new trial. While Pete was waiting for his new trial, he was transferred to the Butler County Jail, and there was an inmate in there named Robert Rupert. Pete had never met him before, but he would end up having major consequences for Pete at his second trial. They were placed in separate pods in the jail at first, but for nine days, they were both residents in Pod C. Robert Rupert wrote a letter to the DA's office titled, Re, Olin Coons, Double Murder. In the letter, he said he didn't want to go into detail, but that he'd spoken to Pete about his case. And he then listed a bunch of vague topics like the window, the mother of the victims, and going postal. Robert asked for an attorney to advise him because he had a lot of concerns about his safety. The prosecution also never disclosed this letter. But they did write to the Butler County prosecutor to ask about Robert Rupert. The prosecutor told him that, like this other prosecutor, told him that they get the impression that Robert is not reliable at all, basically saying, do not use him as a jailhouse informant. Like, he'll do anything to get a deal. They said he was a bit nutty and that he'd sent strange letters to his probation officer and his ex-wife. He also had an extensive criminal history, including 15 crimes of dishonesty. But still, the prosecutor offered to reduce Robert's sentence from 47 months to 27 months for cooperating with them about Pete's case. Robert said that if he cooperated, that meant he would become a target for violence and that he had gained more information from Pete, like basically wanting even more time off. He said Pete had climbed out a window and he hadn't driven his van to the Schroll home. He'd taken his mail jeep. At one point, Robert started backing off, saying he didn't really want to cooperate because he was scared of what that would mean for him in the prison. And the DA threatened to out him anyway if he didn't cooperate. So now he's just going to make stuff up. Right. Which he's doing anyways. Mm-hmm. The second trial got started on December 15th. In opening statements, the prosecutor, Brancart, said, Whether Olin was happy to provide a few extra gifts to Kathleen or whether she was taking them without permission, was an issue that defied clear proof for police, which was actually just a straight-up lie. Like, the police had brought the case against Kathleen to Brancart for charging, and he had decided not to prosecute it. He lied several times in opening and closing statements. Another time, he said that Pete was not listed as the heir in Olin's will, and Kathleen's attorney got up there and testified that that wasn't true. Robert Rupert testified and said that Pete had told him that he'd climbed out of his bedroom window so no one would know that he left, and that his wife, Dee, had helped him get out and close the window after he left. So now he's implicated (laughs) Dee in the murders. Right. Like, no? He said Pete used his mail jeep to drive to the Shrolls, and that he'd had Dee sell it for him afterwards. And he said that Pete killed Kathleen and Carl in the same room, and that he'd left the bodies side by side not like far apart from each other in separate rooms, in a laundry room or a utility room, which is obviously contradicted by the crime scene. Uh And none of that could have been true. First of all, at the time of the murders, Pete was about 300 pounds and in terrible shape. A nurse even testified that when Pete was brought to the county jail, 
He had high blood pressure, shortness of breath, an irregular heartbeat, and he couldn't even walk across a room without becoming red in the face. Yeah, my man's not jumping out of windows, you know? Exactly. They presented medical records showing he'd suffered a heart attack in the past, and he'd had to be put on medical disability as a mail carrier, because even sitting in the truck and sticking mail in the mailboxes was too strenuous for him. But he was supposed to climb out his bedroom window, get to the Shrolls, and then subdue two grown adults and not leave a single object in that house out of place. Yeah, I mean, the lack of evidence of him being there. Like, I walk into a room and I'm leaving something, you know? The only way this could have been true is if Kathleen stood there and was like, all right, just let me know when you're going to murder me. I'll be right here waiting, you know? (laughs) Like, that's the only way. Second, he'd sold his mail Jeep to a man like a year before the shootings. He hadn't even had it at the time. And the guy that bought it testified at that second trial. So is he in the courtroom listening to Rupert say all of this mm-hmm. untrue stuff? Mm-hmm. Oh, I would be. That, that's my problem. I would be. I would just yell the whole time. Like You'd I would be just held yell in contempt. Yeah, they'd well, take I you know, out. Well, I know, but yeah. I would just be screaming. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You'd be screaming inside, but you are a rule follower. And you would have sat there with your little lips shut. You don't think I rolled my eyes real hard when I was getting sued? (laughs) I was like, "Ah." (laughs) can't even see, but I did do that face. People are going to wish they could see that face. It was a very sassy face. (laughs) It was a very like, what are you even talking about face? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, excuse me. One of the lead detectives on the case testified that the gun used in the shootings had been tested for DNA. And only Kathleen's was found on the trigger. Pete's DNA was nowhere on the gun or on the cordless phone lying next to Kathleen's body, or as we've said, anywhere else in the house. (laughs) A detective, Brian Block, testified about Kathleen stealing from Olin. He talked about how he'd tried to speak with Olin himself and had been blocked by both Kathleen and her attorney. So he'd turned to his financial investigation and discovered that Olin's bank accounts had been drained. Yeah, by who, I wonder. Right. He discussed how Pete and Bonnie Keith had had to basically trick Kathleen in order to get Olin out from under her, and that he'd helped get Olin's cars back from Kathleen, who'd been keeping them at her house. Several of Pete's family members testified that Pete had been home with them all night, including Mariah's boyfriend, Ross, who said that that night his car was actually blocking Pete's van in the driveway. He'd had to give Pete his keys the next morning when Pete had to take the kids at the bus stop so he could move Ross's car out of the way. Right. Hmm. During closing, the prosecutor argued that Kathleen had no reason to complete suicide. He said no evidence suggests that she would have had any motivation other than to do anything to live and keep on living. Are you kidding me? She's been embezzling money. She took tons of things from Olin and. I mean, yeah, she was about to go to jail for stealing from a credit union at the very least. Yeah, at the very least. And he said the facts just didn't fit suicide. She didn't leave a note or say goodbye, and she'd shot herself in the back of the head. He said it was clear what had happened here. Pete had gone to the Shrolls in the middle of the night, and he had just, like an evil villain in an Austin Powers movie, just laid out his entire plan to Kathleen, telling her he was going to kill Carl and then kill her and that he'd covered his tracks all nice and neat. And then he clubbed Carl in the head with a blunt object in the bed, shot him twice, while Kathleen made that phone call to her mother. And then Pete got to Kathleen, 
because she didn't spend that 45 seconds getting out, put the gun against the back of her head and fired. He said Pete must have gotten the drop on Kathleen and somehow kept that drop on her the whole time he was in the bedroom killing Carl and Kathleen was making that phone call. It's just so sad. Like, Carl could have been spared in this whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, what about your kids, Kathleen? Like, don't you care about your kids? But now they don't have either parent. Like, you're a trash human. So, okay, fine. They don't need you in their life. But the dad? Like, come on. Yeah. I'm assuming the kids find out the truth. I don't think they really believe it. Oh. I mean, it comes out, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is all happening at trial. They're talking about yeah. all of this at trial. He said Pete must have brought the object, the, the prosecutor, at uh, his closing statements. He said Pete must have brought the object he used to hit Carl with him. And he'd taken it when he left. But, of course, they never found anything. Plus, like, they don't know exactly what he got hit with. There's tons of blunt objects in a house everywhere. Right. The defense thought that there was no way Pete could be found guilty, not with all that evidence showing that he couldn't have done it. But Pete said it was like deja vu when the jury came back into the courtroom. They wouldn't make eye contact with him and once again convicted him of Kathleen's Shut up. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding? No. (gasps) I'm screaming. I know. Patty, his defense attorney, was very bothered by this sentence because she just knew that he was innocent. I know that he's innocent. I know. Another attorney, Brandon Bell, also tried to get the case thrown out because the state's case made no sense. Yeah, truly. But all attempts to help him failed, and he was once again sentenced to 50 years. (sighs) Pete had no hope. He told Dee to divorce him and move on and to live her life. But Dean knew that he was innocent, and she said, you just don't walk away from that. It's, like, really sweet, though. I know. The family all tried to continue to live their lives without Pete. Ben and Melody graduated high school. The years went by, and there were weddings, and babies were born, all while Pete was in prison. Mariah got married, but she refused to have a wedding because Pete couldn't be there. When Melody got married, she asked her brother Ben to walk her down the aisle at the wedding. And Pete told them to tell the grandkids that he was dead. <gasps> so they all know that he didn't do it. I mean, I know. They yes, they all know. Small, so yeah. they all, they're not like. No, not a question, not a doubt in their minds. <sighs> oh, my God. But then in the fall of 2018, a new prosecutor is in town named Mark Dupree. Dun, dun, dun. New sheriff's in town. New sheriff's in town. He'd been a defense attorney when Pete was originally tried, and he had nothing to do with this case at all. But when he became the district attorney, he knew his responsibilities went beyond convicting the guilty. He also needed to look into claims of innocence. Yes. What? Who are you? I know. Welcome. Welcome. You are so welcome here, Mark Dupree. (laughs) So he starts a unit devoted entirely to wrongful conviction claims called the Conviction Integrity Unit. I already gave out my MVP award to Teresa, though. You've got to give it to Mark Dupree. He is the MVP. These Conviction Integrity Units, they are popping up all over the country. And in theory, they truly bring back like a smidgen of faith in the criminal justice system to me. But as of right now, less than 100 cities in the country have these units. And out of those, less than half have actually exonerated anyone. But I'm proud to say that both Harris County and Dallas, Texas have CIUs and both have led to exonerations. 
hey, yay, Texas, this one case. I'm still mad at you, Texas, but right now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> let's not talk about it. Yeah, I'm planning my march. Anyway, this is all very exciting news to Pete's family when they hear about this conviction integrity unit. And yeah. Pete writes a letter to the DA about his case. Letters were pouring into the CIU with claims of innocence from tons of people. But Pete's letter stood out to Dupree because he was able to see all the inconsistencies with his case. How do you even imagine writing that? Like, you know, you have like one shot to let, and I'm assuming he's like writing this like in jail. So he's yeah. like typing it up. So it's like you have three pages of paper maybe to like explain it all. Like, where do you even start? Like, everyone saw me there. That I, I just don't <laughs> know how you would condense all of that into one like, I wasn't at the gas station. I my know. car was blocked in. I can't fit through a window. <laughs> my family heard me coughing. Like, I just don't even know where you would like. I would just be a mess. I know. I know. But they looked into it and they quickly came to the conclusion that there were serious reasons to doubt Pete's guilt. They came to the prison and told him. So now the DA's office is working with the Innocence Project and Pete's attorney mm -hmm. to look into the case, which it's really exciting to me when the Innocence Project and the state are on the same side because they should yeah. be. That's what I was saying. <laughs> that attorney, Brandon Bell, he's still on this case. He said this case had affected him so much that he had thought about walking away from the profession completely because he said he didn't want to be a part of a system that would allow something like this to happen. Brandon Bell, you are. You are a part of that system. But thank you for trying to make it a little bit better. <laughs> so then Brandon is looking at crime scene photos from the bedroom, and he's looking just pixel by pixel. And he thinks he sees something in the pillow behind Carl's head. There was like a hole in the pillow with stuffing coming out. And he thinks he sees something. So he zooms in, and he keeps zooming in. And he realized what he was looking at. There was a fourth bullet. Bullet. It was buried in the pillow, which was currently still in evidence. And no one had ever bothered looking in the hole in the pillow. I don't understand that. I'm so nosy. Like, I am digging through all the stuff. What, do you just think that that was there before? That there was it's just like this main hole? evidence. Like, where did it come from? Isn't that your question? How did this hole get here? Oh. Because there's a bullet there, they pulled it out and they found the bullet in pristine condition sitting in the stuffing of that pillow. Jeez. And what this proved is that the wound to Carl's head was actually a graze from that fourth bullet. She missed. <laughs> she missed. <laughs> it was not done by some object that Pete had brought with him to the house. That meant that the gun, Kathleen's gun, that was always in her purse, was the only weapon used in that crime. Yeah. So he, di he didn't bring anything with him to the house to kill these people. Because he wasn't there. Because he wasn't there. I could still see them saying that, like, he used her gun, though. But that's, like, not Oh, enough. sure. I mean, you're going to try. Yeah. But if you have yeah. a, a ridiculous DA, but luckily they don't. They have one that's using common sense and isn't, like, so stuck on trying to prove that they were right. You know, yeah. that's what it is. It's like, we just can't admit that we were wrong. It's so, uh, it just makes you look like a little boy throwing a little hissy fit. <laughs> it's okay. I knew what you were really going to say. Also in that evidence <laughs> room were swabs from Kathleen's hands that had never been tested. <gasps> yes. They sent the swabs out and they came back positive for gunshot residue. Add to that the fact Booyah. that only Kathleen's DNA was found on the gun, and you have pretty compelling evidence to support actual innocence. Oh, my God. 
So then Pete's attorney tracked down Robert Rupert, who admitted that he had made it all up. He was compromised in his testimony, and Pete had never told him that he'd killed anyone. He'd made it all up because he'd been hoping to get time shaved off his own sentence, which was a a shock to everyone, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously. (laughs) Nobody saw that coming. (laughs) It's going to be in there forever now. What a a plot twist. No, I think he was – he's totally out by this time. This is 12 years later. All those emails from the attorney – He's already served 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. All those emails from the attorney about Robert being an unreliable witness, none of that had been turned over to the defense. It was so obvious that the original prosecutor had not treated Pete fairly. And this is what makes me so upset about cases like this. Like, you want to take away a man's life, ruin a family, also you can add another win to your belt? Like, what is that? Why did you become a lawyer? Yeah, I don't understand that. Like, There's other avenues. There's other career paths. <laughs> yes, Some of the strongest evidence in the case against Pete was the motive, this battle between Kathleen and Pete over the insurance payout. But now that they were finally looking at other motives, it turned the entire case on its head. They started looking at murder from the point of view of suicide, and they saw a clear picture of Kathleen's debt leading her to believe that this was the only option. But she wouldn't want her debts to fall on her family. So she needed to cook up this whole scheme to take Pete down with her. She also happened to have some real animosity towards him, made it easier. So much so that she framed him for her own murder. God. And the murder of her husband. I mean, that's what kills me, too, is like, you could have just, I just. And you can see the premeditation with it because she had started spreading false rumors about Pete a long time ago. He was a drug addict saying that he'd vandalized Olin's house and stole the plumbing. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the plumbing. (laughs) Wait, was the plumbing really stolen or she just No, she just made that up. I was like, did she actually go and like steal the plumbing herself? I'm not entirely sure. She never (laughs) filed a police report about it. I think she just told people this stuff. And she also made up that story about the quick trip argument. Like she'd had this plan in motion for a long time. Yeah, she got it in her head. And then it was like she had no other choice. She thought. Completely. She shot Carl in his bed, and then she made that phone call to her mother implicating Pete. She'd probably rehearsed exactly what she was going to say over and over, and she needed to make sure that her mother understood what she was saying. So she repeated it verbatim when she asked her to. Then she turned her head, pressed the gun to the back of it, and pulled the trigger, knowing that Pete would go down for her murder. I'm surprised she had the foresight to do the back of the head. I'm not. Machiavellian, diabolical, Mogab. She was diabolical. Pete said, I can't fathom what kind of evil person does that over something as common as money. Hmm. In debt, honestly. I mean, who's mm. not in debt? Yeah. In November. Shouts to you, whoever you are. <laughs> I do not know you. Maybe just go get like another second job. You know, yeah, Waffle House is always hiring. Or and like, you take home sell your cash. house. Like, just sell your house. Sell your kids. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't sell your kids. Is, is this thing on? Don't sell your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, everywhere is hiring. 12 years after his arrest, Pete walked into the courthouse, but this time it was the state on trial. Pete's attorney laid it all out the physical evidence that contradicted the state's case, the jailhouse snitch that recanted. Kathleen's history with embezzlement, 
and the evidence that the state had withheld. Her plot to frame Pete was so diabolical, it extended to how she even killed herself. They believed that she shot herself in the back of the head to make it look like an execution. The Emmy, who testified at both of Pete's trial, said, It's not impossible to shoot yourself in the back of the head. And the fact that the barrel of the gun was like at an angle and not flush supports that scenario too. All the new evidence made the medical examiner tell the judge that he'd gotten it wrong. He no longer believed it was a double homicide, but a murder-suicide, and he was devastated by the cost of his wrong opinion. The judge heard all the evidence and then went to go make his decision. This was not a second chance. This was the only chance Pete was ever going to get. The judge came back and started off by giving a speech on how some days it's really difficult to be a judge and how this was one of those days. Then he went through the evidence, and he talked about the misconduct on behalf of the state, and he just says the words, not fair. He said, in this country, the right to due process means something, and it was violated. And he said, Pete Coons, you are free to go. Aww. My goodness. Three MVP awards. (laughs) I know. I know. Kathleen's daughter, Blair, was not there. Her aunt told her that they released Pete, and Blair was shocked to learn that her mother had gone from victim to villain. She says she's so confused, she doesn't know what to believe, but if they're right and that's what happened, she feels so bad for his family. Aw, that's kind of like a mature response, I would say. Yeah. DA Mark Dupree says that this case was a victory, even though it brought to light wrongdoings and a massive failure by the DA's office. He says this is something that a first-year DA learns never to do, withhold evidence. And I say that's something that anyone who's ever listened to a single true crime podcast knows not to do. You don't withhold evidence. Yeah, we're out here doing the work, you know, we're educating (laughs) people. We're educating people, hashtag not a lawyer, hashtag never yeah, been to law school, hashtag not, not an expert, hashtag don't listen to me, always fact check, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer, hashtag disclaimer. Hashtag 40% accurate. <laughs> so uh, great news. The original prosecutor now works for the Kansas Attorney General's office. So oh, hey. he had zero repercussions for all his lies and for all that great. evidence he intentionally withheld. Yeah. So uh, yes. excellent job there. It is up to the Kansas Supreme Court to do anything about that. So, Kansas Supreme Court, why don't you come on up and answer for your crimes? Answer for your crimes. <laughs> also, that prosecutor, who I don't remember your name, barn card, so I don't care. Uh, answer for your <laughs> crimes also. Thank you. Right away, the Coons family started to make new memories. Pete and Ben had a great relationship before he went to prison, and that continued. Did they go somewhere other than McDonald's? <laughs> Yes, they did. They went to Walmart and he was like amazed at all the little things that just everyone takes for granted. He would get so excited going to Walmart. They had Walmart before. Yeah, I guess just being in prison for so long, like. Like forgot about the joys of Walmart. Yeah. Like you can just buy it. I hope he calls it the Walmart. I love when people put the in front (laughs) of it. The Walmart, the Facebook. Pete and Ben had a great relationship before and that continued after he got home. They were able to just pick up right where they'd left off. Pete got to know his granddaughter. Melody said seeing her daughter say grandpa and point to him was overwhelming. And she said he's been such a great grandpa. Pete said it was incredible getting to hug his wife and children again. But he said it's indescribable getting to meet your grandkids. 
He got to spend this past Christmas with his family, and he said he was looking forward, not back. He wanted to be happy about what he has and not sad about what he lost. Well, that's good for you, Pete, but I am looking back, and I am (laughs) upset because it's, like, so sad. They get so excited about, you know, the Walmart and, like, getting to hug your grandkid and, like, all the normal stuff that they should have gotten to do, and they're so grateful. And all the things that he missed, like the weddings and the time. You don't have to just be grateful that you're doing this now. Like, you can be pissed that you lost 12 years of it. I'm pissed. I think it was more about not letting those 12 years steal any more of his time. Well – I know. I will I will stay enraged about okay. it for you. And I really want to stop the story there and say that he continues living this wonderful life with his family. Oh, no. But in early February of 2021, oh, 108 no, days after he was released, no. Pete passed away from undiagnosed stage four lung cancer. You know why it was undiagnosed? Do you know Because he was in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That judge was right. It is not fair. And that is the story of the shooting of Carl and Kathleen Schroll. Well, Kathleen? What a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Done. (laughs) But thank God he had that 108 days. I mean, it's I, I don't mean that glibly. Like, it's not enough time. It's so unfair. It makes me so upset. But, like, I don't know. It's something at least. Like, they got to spend his last... Yeah, at least, yeah, he didn't die in prison. And he got to see himself determined innocent, officially. Mm -hmm. You know, that didn't happen, you know, after he died. Like, that would have... Posthumous. Posthumously. posthumously. (laughs) That word. (laughs) We say it, like, once an episode, too. Or attempt to say it. And that's all I got for you. (sighs) Great, because I got a cool chicken wrap and a fruit cup waiting downstairs. Excellent. We got some shout outs to do. You know it, girl. You know it. Ooh, so excited. All right. Thank you so much, Sandra Erfer from Across the Ocean, who absolutely loves our podcast. Thank you, Sandra. Yeah, one of our international listeners. Ooh. Maggie Eicher, major shouts to you. Thank you to Loia the Slush. LOL. I think that's Lola. That's not an I? No. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was. Va- you sounded Hawaiian, though. Look, I did. Lo- Maybe I thought, that, I I thought that was what. All right, just in case. Thank you, Lola the Slush. That <sighs> that sounds much more reasonable. I love that slush. Uh-huh. I thought it was a lush at first. It's probably a difference. Lola the Lush. <laughs> <laughs> uh BFF E McD. Major shouts. No. <laughs> yeah, Mogab will know. I I do know all the French fries for you. Is that Waho? Okay. House? Yeah. This, okay. I didn't know this, but people in like the Midwest region, I'd be interested to know where KJ is from. I should know because I addressed that envelope, I know. But people <laughs> shorten Waffle House to Wahoo, and I had never seen that until <gasps> I moved to Columbus. I never Wahoo? Yeah. Waffle House obsessed with none around. I mean, thoughts and prayers to you. T's and P's. T's and P's, KJ. Shouts to KJ. Who is Waffle House obsessed with none around. That is a bummer. KJ, you get yourself to Waffle House and your waffle's on me. (laughs) Just KJ, not I can't afford waffles for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. And if you have not heard your shout out yet, but you've signed up, it's coming. And if you have not signed up, go do that. It's on the Patreon. 
right now. Right now. Hey, peeps and creeps. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We really, really appreciate it. We would appreciate it even more if you sign up for our Patreon or join our Facebook discussion group. There's a lot of great things happening in there. Oh, yeah. And, of course, follow us on social media at CreepersPod. And you can always email us case suggestions. You can slide them in our DMs or you can email us at CreepersPod at gmail.com. Also, tell your friends about the podcast. If you like this podcast and you would like to show your support. And you know you do. Apart from joining our Patreon, (laughs) the best way to do that is to spread the word. Tell your friends. If you're in true crime Facebook groups, plug away. It helps us out so much. You have no idea how much it helps us out when you recommend this podcast to other people. So thank you so much to those who do that. Also, if you have left us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, major shouts to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you haven't, why don't you go ahead and get on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a written review. We would love you forever. It really helps us out a lot if you do that. So also, we're almost at 300. So if we could get there. I know, so close. Oh my God. If we could get to 300 before our one year, that's like 25 in the next month. That's a lot. That's like almost one a day. That won't happen. But it could maybe. Listen. Help us get there. Shoot for the stars. Shoot for the stars. You'll land amongst the moon? I, no, I think it's shoot, shoot for, for the, the moon. moon. You'll land amongst the stars. Either way, please subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Mogab another ridiculously diabolical wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.